Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Meccas of the World, published in 1913 by Anne Warwick. This story starts off in New York, as it was during the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to iTunes listener, Ali Mendy, for your magnificent review. It's almost a story in itself. Thank you. Thank you to Insta user, Laura of House, Nebraska. It sounds like you enjoyed the beekeeping episode as much as I did. And thank you to all the Podbean listeners for your lovely reviews. I'd thank you individually, but unfortunately, I can't see your username. Finally, thank you to Jennifer Parks for your lovely comments on Facebook. I'm glad the podcast is helping out. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask of you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave a show rating in Spotify or your favourite podcast player of choice. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching for Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Meccas of the World The Play of Modern Life in New York, Paris, Vienna, Madrid, and London by Anne Warwick Prologue A play is a play in so much as it furnishes a fragment of actual life. Being only a fragment, and thus literally torn out of the mass of life, it is bound to be sketchy, to a certain extent even superficial. Particularly is the case where the scene shifts between five places radically, different in elements and ideals. The author can only present the, to her, most impressive aspects of the several pictures, trusting to her sincerity to bridge the gaps her enforced brevity must create. And first, she invites you to look at the piece in rehearsal. Thanks to the promoters of Opera Buff, we are accustomed as a universe to screw our eye to a single peephole in the curtain that conceals a nation, and innocently to accept that we see therefrom 
as typical of the entire people. Thus, England is generally supposed to be inhabited by a blonde youth with a top hat on the back of his head and a large boutonniere overwhelming his morning coat. He carries a loud stick and says ah and is invariably strolling along Piccadilly. In France, the youth has grown into a bad, bold man of thirty whose features consist of a pair of inky moustaches and a wicked leer. He sits at a table and drinks absinthe and watches the world go by. The world is never by chance engaged elsewhere. It obligingly continues to go by. Spain has a rose over her ear and listens with patience to a perpetual guitar. Austria forever is waltzing upstairs, while America is known to be populated by a sandy-haired person of no definite age or embellishments, who spends his time in the alternate amusements of tripling his fortune, I guess. He has a white marble mansion on Fifth Avenue and an office in Wall Street where daily he corners cotton or sugar or crude oil as the fancy strikes him and as he is bounded on every side by skyscrapers. Like most widely accepted notions, this is picturesque but untrue. The Americans of America, or at least the New Yorkers of New York, are not the handful of men cutting off coupons in mahogany offices downtown, nor the silken, sacheted women gliding in and out of limousines with gold purses. They are the swarm of shopkeepers and specialists, mechanics and small retailers, newspaper reporters and petty clerks, such as flood the subways and elevated railways of New York morning and night. Fighting like savages for a seat, they are the army of tailors and shirt makers and milliners girls who daily pour through the cross streets to and from their sordid work. They are the palely determined hordes who batter at the artistic door of the city and live on nothing a week. They are the vast troops of creatures born under a dozen different flags whom the city has seduced with her golden wand. So much for the actual New Yorkers as contrasted with the gilded nunnity of musical comedy and best-selling fiction. As for New York itself, it has the appearance of behind the scenes at a gigantic theatre. Coming into the harbour is like entering the house of a great lady by the back door. Jagged rows of match-like buildings present their blank rear walls to the river or form lurid bills of advertisement for somebody's pork and beans. Huge barns of ferry terminuses overlap with their galleries, 
the narrow streets beneath. Slim towers shoot up, giddy and dazzling white, in the midst of grimy tenements and hideous black network of elevated railways. The domes of churches and of pickle factories, the turrets of prisons and of terracotta hotels, the electric signs of theatres and of cemetery companies are mingled indiscriminately in a vast, hurled-together heap, while everywhere great piles of stone and steel are dizzily jutting skyward, ragged and unfinished. It is plain to be seen that here life is in preparation, a piece in rehearsal, with the scene shifters a bit scarce or untutored in their business. One has the uncomfortable sensation of having been in too great haste to call, and so caught the haughty city on her moving in day. This breeds humility in the visitor, and indulgence for the poor lady who is doing her best to set her house to rights. It is a splendid house, and a distinctly clever lady, and certainly in a time they will adjust themselves to one another and to the world outside. For the present they loftily enjoy a gorgeous chaos. Into this the stranger is landed summarily, and with no pause of railway journey before he attacks the city. London, Paris, Madrid may discreetly withdraw a hundred miles or more further from the impatient foreigner. New York confronts him brusquely on the pier, and from his peaceful cabin he is plunged into a vortex of hysterical reunions, rushing porters, lordly customs officials, newspaper men, express agents, boot blacks and boys shouting telegram. He has been on the dock only five minutes, when he realises that the dock itself is unequivocally, uncompromisingly New York. Being New York, it has at once all the conveniences and all the annoyances known to man. There at his elbow, one can talk by long-distance telephone, from the pier to any part of the United States, or one can telegraph a day letter or a night letter and be sure of its delivery in any section of the 3,000-mile continent by 8 o'clock next morning. One can check one's trunks when they have passed the customs direct to one's residence, whether it be Fifth Avenue New York, or Nob Hill, San Francisco, time, distance, the clumsiness of inanimate things are dissipated before the eyes of the dazzled stranger. On the other hand, before even he has set foot on American soil, he becomes acquainted with American arrogance, American indifference, the fantasy of American democracy, the national attitude of I am as good as you are, has been conveyed to him through the surly answers of the porter, 
the cheerful familiarity of the customs examiner, the grinning impudence of the express man. These excellent public servants would have the foreigner know once and for all. He is in a land where all men are indisputably proven free and equal every minute. The extremely interesting fact that all men are most unequal has still to occur to the American. He is in the stage of doing, not yet of thinking. Therefore he finds disgrace in saying sir to another man, but none in showing him rudeness. In a civilization like that of America, where the office boy of today is the millionaire of tomorrow, the millionaire of today tomorrow will be begging a job. There cannot exist the hardened fast lines which in older worlds definitely fix one man as a gentleman, another as his servant. Under his management of lightning changes, the most insignificant of the chorus nurses, the belief that he may be jumped overnight into the leading role there is something rather fine in the desperate self-confidence of every American in the ultimate rise of his particular star. Out of it, I believe, grows much of that feverish activity which the visitor to New York invariably records among his first impressions. One has barely arrived and been whirled from the dock into the roar and rush of 23rd Street and Broadway, when he begins to realise the relentless energy of the place. The very wind sweeps along the tunnel-like streets, through the rows of monster buildings, with a speed that takes the breath. In the fiercest of the gale, at the intersection of the two great thoroughfares of 5th Avenue and Broadway, rises the solid, serene bulk of the Flatrion building, like a majestic, winged victory breasting the storm. Over to the right, in Madison Square, a metropolitan tower rears its disdainful white loftiness, far above the dusky gold and browns of old Madison Square Garden, above the dwarfed Manhattan Club, the round Byzantine dome of the Madison Square Presbyterian Church. But the Flatron itself has the proudest sight in New York, facing to the north, on one side the tangle and turmoil of Broadway, its unceasing whir of business, business and more business. On the other side, the broad elegance and dignity of Fifth Avenue, with its impressive cavalcade of mounted police, while east and west, before this giant building, rushed the trams and traffic of 23rd Street, and to the south lie the arches of aristocratic old Washington Square. It is as though, at this converging point, one gathers together all the outstanding threads in the fabric of this city, to visualise its central pattern. And the outstanding types of the city here are gathered also. One sees the ubiquitous businessman 
in his careful, square-shouldered clothes, hurrying from bus to tram, or tearing downtown in a taxi. The most ubiquitous businesswoman, trig and quietly self-confident, on her brisk uptown walk to the office, and the out-of-town woman, shopper, with the enormous handbag, and the anxious-eyed Hebrew importer, and his stunned little errand girl darting through the maze of traffic like a fish through well-known waters. The idle young man about town, immortalised in the sock and collar advertisements of every surface car and subway, and the equally idle young girl, in her elaborate sameness, the prototype of the same cover of the best magazines. Even in one day, there comes to be a strange familiarity about all these people. They are peculiar to their own special class, but within that class they are like as peas in a pod. They have the same features, wear the same clothes, even to a certain shade, and do the same things in identically the same way with all about them shifting, progressing, alternating from hour to hour, New Yorkers in themselves remain unaltered. Or if they change, they change together as one, to be a millionaire, or shopkeeper, doctor of divinity, or manager of comic opera. For of all men under the sun, the New Yorker is a type acutely suspicious of and instinctively opposed to anything independent of the type. Hence, in spite of the vast numbers of different peoples brought together on Manhattan Island, we find not a community of Americans growing cosmopolitan, but a community of cosmopolitans forced to grow New Yorkers, this under the potent influence of extreme American adaptability, they do in a remarkably short time. The human potpourri, who five years ago had never seen Manhattan, today being indistinguishable in the representative city mass. Walk out Fifth Avenue at the hour of afternoon parade, or along Broadway on a matinee day, Broadway is blatant, Fifth Avenue is desperately toned down. On Broadway, voices and millinery are a few shades more strident, self-acetation a few shades more arrogant than on the less ingenuous avenue. It is amazing the thousands of these people that there are. New York seems to breed them faster than any other type and the hundreds of restaurants they support. Every hotel has its three or four huge dining rooms, its palm garden, Dutch grill, etc. But as all these were not enough, shrewd Frenchmen and Germans and Viennese have dotted the city with cafes and little hungries, to say nothing of the alarming Egyptian and Turkish that are favourite erection of the American restaurateur himself. The typical New York feeding place from the outside is a palace in terracotta, 
From the inside, a vast galleried room or set of rooms, upheld by rows and ochre marble pillars, carpeted with thick red rugs, furnished with bright gilt chairs and heavily damasked flower-laden tables. To reach one's table, one must thread one's way through a maze of lions couchants, peacocks with spread mother-of-pearl tails, and opalescent dragons that turn out to be lights. Proud detail of the million-dollar decorative scheme, referred to in the advertisements of the house, finally anchored in this sea of sumptuousness. One is confronted with the dire necessity of ordering a meal from a menu that would have staggered Epicurus. There is the table of Jahat of nine courses, any one of them a meal in itself, or there is the bewildering carte de jour from which to choose strawberries in December, oranges in May, or whatever collection of ruinous exotics one pleases. The New Yorker himself goes methodically down the list, from oysters to iced pudding, impartial in his recognition of the merits of lobster bisque, creamed sweetbreads, porterhouse steak, broiled partridge and Russian salad. He sits down to this banquet at about seven o'clock and rises or is assisted to rise about ten or half past unless he is going on to a play in which case he disposes of his nine courses with the same lightning execution displayed at his quick lunch only increasing his drink supply to facilitate the process. Meanwhile, there is the Napoleon Quartet and the Hungarian Rhapsodist and the lady in the pink satin blouse who sings the rosary to amuse our up-to-date Nero. I wonder what the Romans would make of the modern cabaret. Like so many French importations, stripped in transit, of their saving coats of French esprit, the cabaret in American becomes helplessly vulgar. Extreme youth cannot carry off the risque, which requires the salt of worldly wisdom. It only succeeds in being rowdy, and the noisy songs, the loud jokes, the blatant dances, all the spurious claptrap which in these New York feeding resorts passes for amusement, points to the most youthful sort of rowdyism, to a popular discrimination still in embryo. But the New Yorker dotes on it, the cabaret I mean, if for no other reason, because it satisfies his passion for getting his money's worth. He is ready to pay a handsome price, but he demands handsome return, and no extras, if you please. It was convenience that, until recently, made it the custom for average New York playgoer to appear at the theatre in morning dress. The tired businessman could afford to go to the play, but had not the energy to change for it. So naturally his wife and daughter did not change either 
and the orchestra presented a commonplace aspect, made up of shirt weights and high button coats. Now, however, following the example of society, people are beginning to break away from this unattractive austerity, and theatre audiences are enlivened by a sprinkling of light frocks and white shirts. We have already commented on the most popular type of dramatic amusement in America, the extravaganza, and musical comedy so-called. It is time now to mention the gradually developing legitimate drama, which has its able exponents in Augustus Thomas, Edward Sheldon, Eugene Walter, the late Clyde Fitch, and half a dozen others of no less insight and ability. Their plays present the stirring and highly dramatic scenes of American business and social life. And while for the foreigner, many of the situations lose their full significance, being peculiar to America in rather greater degree than French plays are peculiar to France, and English to England. Even he must be impressed with the vivid realism and powerful climax of the best American comedies. The nation as a whole is vehemently opposed to tragedy in any form, and demands of books and plays alike that they invariably shall and end well. Such brilliant exceptions as Eugene Walter's The Easiest Way and Sheldon's play only prove the rule that the successful piece must have a happy ending. High finance plays naturally an important part as nucleus of plots, also the marriage of working girls with scions of the upper ten. But the playwright has only to look into the newspapers in this country of perpetual adventure to find enough romance and sensation to fill every theatre in New York. It seems almost as though the people themselves are surfeited with the actual drama that surrounds them, for they are rather languid as an audience, and must be piqued by more and more startling thrillers before moved to enthusiasm. Even then their applause is usually directed towards the star, in whom they take far keener interest than in the play itself. It is interesting to follow this passionate individualism of the nation that dominates its amusements as well as its activities. The player, not the plays, the thing with Americans, and on theatrical bills the name of the principal actor or actress is always given the largest type, the title of the piece next largest, while the author is tucked away like an afterthought in letters that can just be seen. The acute American businessman, who is always a businessman, whether financing a railroad or a Broadway farce, is not slow to profit by the penchant of the public for big names. By means of unlimited advertising and the right kind of notoriety, he builds up ordinary actors into valuable theatrical properties. 
given a comedian of average talent, average good looks, and an average amount of magnetism, and a clever press agent, he has a star. This brilliant being draws five times the salary of the leading lady of former years, and in return has only to confide her life history and beauty recipes to her adorning public via the current magazines. Furthermore, stars are received with open arms by society and may be divorced oftener than other people without injury, rather with distinct advantage to their reputation. Each new divorce gives a fillip to the public curiosity and so brings in money to the box office. Not only in the field of the legitimate is a big name the all-important asset of an artist. Ladies who have figured in murder trials, gentlemen whom circumstantial evidence alone has failed to prove assassins, are eagerly sought after by enterprising vaudeville managers who beg them to accept the paltry sum of a thousand dollars a week for showing themselves to curious crowds and delivering a ten-minute monologue on the deficiencies of American law. How or why the name has become big is a matter of only financial moment, and Americans of rigid respectability flock to stare at ex-criminals, members of the underworld temporarily in the limelight, and young persons whose sole claim to distinction lies in the glamour, shed by one-time royal favour. Thanks to press agents and newspapers, the affairs of this motley collection, as indeed of stars of every luster, are so constantly and so intimately before the public, that one hears people of all classes discussing them as though they were lifelong friends. Thus, at the theatre, oh no, the play isn't anything, but I have come to see Laura Lee. Isn't she stunning? You ought to see her in blue. Again, at the restaurant, how's May Morris looking? There she is, over by the window. What they do not know about celebrities of all sorts would be hard to teach Americans. They can tell you how many eggs Caruso eats for breakfast and describe to the last rosebush Maud Adams's country home their interest in the drama and music these people interpret tales along tepidly in wake of their worship for the successful individual Americans are not a musical people. They go to the opera because it is fashionable to be seen there, and to concerts and recitals for the most part because they confer to proper aesthetic touch. But only a handful have any real knowledge or love of music, and that handful is continually crucified by the indifference of the rest. I can think of no more painful experience for a sincere music lover than to attend a performance at the Metropolitan Opera. 
And this not only because people are continually coming in and going out, destroying the continuity of the peace, but because the latter itself is carelessly executed and often faulty. But of course, opera is the last thing for which people buy $10 seats at the Metropolitan. The Golden Horse Shoe is the last spectacle they pay to see. The masterpieces of Celeste and Helois, rather than the masterpieces of Wagner or Puccini, lure them within the great atmosphere. And certain it is that the famous double tier of boxes boasts more beautiful women. Yet I first saw them from my modest seat in the orchestra. They appeared to be a collection of radiant venuses sitting in the gilded bathtubs. It will be interesting to follow New York musical education if the indefatigable Mr. Hammerstein succeeds in the present proposal to offer the light of French and Italian operas at popular prices. Hitherto, music along with every other art in America has been so commercialized that wealth rather than appreciation and true fondness has controlled it. But meanwhile, there has developed instinctively and irrepressibly the much disparaged ragtime. It is the pose among musical loudly to decry any suggestions of ragtime as a national art. Yet the fact remains that it has grown up spontaneously as the popular and the only distinctly American form of musical expression. Of course, the old shuffling dances were responsible for it in the beginning. I was visiting some Americans in Tokyo when a portfolio of new music was sent out to them in 1899, and I remember that it consisted entirely of cakewalks and other titles, but this has long since ceased to be the characteristic of ragtime as a whole which takes its inspiration from every phase of nervous, precipitate American life. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've liked listening to the old times in New York. I hope you're also feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode. Very soon. Good night.